Oh, I miss being that age. 18. Whole life ahead of me. I'm so old, and death is so near. <laughs> you are 30-something years old, child. I appreciate the 30-something, because this is the year I've decided I'm not getting any older. This is it. I'm sticking at this. This is... I'm done. Uh, the manicurist threw me when she asked me how old I was turning, and I gave her the actual number. And I was just like, and that is the last time I'm saying that. 33. I am turning 33 from here until eternity. I just turned 39, so shut your face. You pick whatever date you like. I'm sticking at 33, and I'm not getting a year older than that. I've decided. <laughs> it shall go on my tombstone. Here lies the oldest 33-year-old ever known to have survived. Well into probably her hundreds. At that point, it better be. Welcome to the newest episode of Rabbit Holes Podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Elise. And I'm your other host, Andy. And we have been discussing the wonderfulness that was the OC. Yes. So. That was a rabbit hole in itself. In and of itself. Uh, I can't remember what I'm supposed to do tomorrow, but I will remember lots of unimportant plot points from the three seasons of the, the OC. OC. Yeah. Well, I don't even Andy, think I saw the third season. It's really about what's key and crucial in your life. That's what you've got the, main, the brain space for. Exactly. <laughs> that and 80s hair metal song lyrics. I mean, you are basically a pub crawl trivia night goldmine if you ever That's hit true. the right pub on the right night. That is true. Hmm. <laughs> so that said, we are recording in the podcast studio slash my walk-in closet that has no ventilation. It is four gajillion hundred degrees in the Ottawa Valley this week, and I'm starting to feel it. So. Yeah, it's starting to be a little sweltering here. Yeah. So we're going to dive right into our stories and get going, and because I got to go first last week, Andy gets to go first this week. Yep. So this is a bunch of little rabbit holes that I wanted to cover, but didn't spark a whole hole, it's whole hole itself. Say that three times fast. <laughs> so I'm calling this WTF Internet, or what did I just read? Fair. Fair, fair, fair. So the first article is called, Why is the Indian Army Tweeting About Yetis? Okay, I saw that go through the inbox when I was like at Chapters this afternoon, and I'm just like, Either this is a heat stroke, or I'm in for a trip. <laughs> Using foot tweet. Oh, good. <laughs> I forgot to put, don't open these. Um, so this, most of these come from live science, because it's my favorite place. Of course. Um, the Indian Army has spurred an avalanche of jokes and boistered the spirits of the occasional true believer with a tweet proposing to show evidence of the elusive Yeti. Well, of course. For the first time, the hashtag Indian Army Mountaineering, Mountaineering Expedition Team has cited mysterious footprints of the mythical beast Yeti, measuring 32 by 15 inches close to the Mawiki base camp on the 9th of April 2019. That is quite a shoe size. Yes. The Indian Army account tweeted that on April 29th. This elusive snowman has only been sighted at Markilu Bona National Park in the past. Okay. I have butchered that and I apologize to the people from <laughs> India. Pardon me, I'm very white. 
She is. She is basically transparent. That's my, uh, I'm going to say that, like, um, and that's why we drink. She says English isn't my first language when she points or something. I'm going to say, I'm sorry. I'm very white. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Apologize. Uh, The army has not given any indication of that it was joking. So according to the Times of India, officials have said that they were turning over the evidence, air quotes, Mm. to, again, air quotes, subject matter experts and wanted to go public to rekindle public interest in the mythical ape-like beast. Who are these subject matter experts? And can I buy them a drink? (laughs) Although Twitter users almost immediately jumped on the opportunity for levity with many tweeting goofy gifs of dancing yetis and mocking the post. Yeah. The yeti is an old myth originating with the people who called the Himalayas home. Its alternative name, the Abominable Snowman, came from a 1921 interview with British explorers of Mount Everest, and it was conducted by a journalist named Henry Newman. The adventurers claimed they had seen footsteps on the mountain and that their guide said it came from a word that I am not going to attempt to pronounce, or man, bear, snowman. Uh, Newman mistranslated it as filthy, as one of the words is filthy, and he decided to swap it out for the more poetic, abominable snowman. So instead of man, bear, he thought it said filthy bear, filthy snowman, so he changed it to abominable snowman. Somebody had his word of the day calendar out and about that week. Yes, he did. The alleged Yeti has occasionally been sighted since, but none of the sightings have panned out. Of course. <laughs> the most famous f- photographs of the proposed Yeti turned out to be a rock. Oh, no. <laughs> He's being real still and cagey. Yeah. <laughs> the pictures posted by the Indian Army are hardly a slam dunk proof of a sighting. They consist of a few shots of a single file line of impressions in the snow that looks like it's experienced some partial melting. In one picture, a small downhill line shows spots where chunks of snow or ice have skidded down the hillside. The tracks are indistinct and don't seem to preserve anything resembling claw or toe marks. Indeed, they look very little like something left by a biped animal, given that there's only one line of impressions. So they've already started to melt, which those of us in Canada knows that that makes your boot prints much bigger as it mm-hmm. starts to melt around, yeah. sink in. It looks nothing like your nine, size nine sh- snow boot yep. did when you walked in the house if it started to melt. So they shot nothing. Hmm. Earlier Yeti evidence, again, air quoting. air quoting, has failed to provide any factual bias for the snow-loving creature in 2011 a bone claimed to be a yeti finger turned out to belong to a long dead human and every sample of so-called yeti hair ever tested has turned out to belong to bears or dogs so this actually segues nicely into the second article that i had uh, flagged in my reading file but first if you don't post a picture of bumble from rudolph stop animation story i'm gonna be really disappointed in you i will definitely do that okay good thank you (laughs) Uh, This actually segues nicely into my next article, which is called Bigfoot's FBI File Reveals Strange Story of a Monster Hunter and 15 Mysterious Hairs. Oh, boy. Shocker. This is also from Live Science. The FBI has far more important things to do with their time. 
than this. So the U.S. government released Bigfoot's FBI file on June 5th. (laughs) I really hope there's an artist rendering on, like, the cover of the file of him holding, like, a America's Most Wanted. (laughs) We're not going to release the JFK files, but Mm. let's give you this Bigfoot thing everybody's clamoring for. Well, I mean, one is real and the other isn't, so, (laughs) I mean. Which one's real? (laughs) <laughs> or some tax files. Let's get some tax files, people. Now, here, we'll give you some yetis. Yeah. Uh, it contained a few news clippings and some formal letters to and from a monster hunter in the 70s. Oh. Leading to the examination of 15 hairs and some skin the hunter believed came from a Bigfoot. <laughs> Dramatically <sighs> folding my paper over. Oh, boy. It appears that Peter Brine, that monster hunter, first wrote to the FBI on August 26, 1976. His note printed on fancy letterhead reading, The Bigfoot Information Center and Exhibition, (laughs) that's what his letterhead said, suggested that the FBI was in possession of flesh and hairs belonging to a mysterious creature, possibly belonging to a Bigfoot. Gentlemen, Brine wrote, Will you kindly, to set the record straight once and for all, inform us if the FBI has examined hair, which might be that of a Bigfoot, when it took place, if it did take place, what the results of the analysts were? He didn't indicate why he suspected the FBI might have done such an analysis, only that from time to time we've had been informed that hair, supposedly of a Bigfoot, has been examined by the FBI, and with the conclusion, as the report of the examination, that it is it was not possible to compare the hair with that of any known creature on this continent. Uh, you know, dear FBI, you don't have to respond to every crackpot that writes to you. <laughs> Brian appears to have been concerned with the agency concerned that the agency wouldn't take the Bigfoot Information Center seriously. No. <laughs> really? <laughs> Please understand that our research here is serious, he wrote. That is a serious question that needs answering. Is it? Is it, though? (laughs) He also assured the agency that they wouldn't need to worry about his implying their involvement in his work. An examination of hair, or the opposite, by the FBI does not in any way, as far as we are concerned, suggest that the FBI is associated with our project or confirms in any way the possibility of the existence of a creature known as Bigfoot, he wrote. Translation, we want to be able to monetize it when you tell us it's actually true. Yeah. Don't worry, we won't tell anybody that it came from you. (laughs) Assistant FBI Director of the agency's laboratory division, Jay Cochran Jr., replied two weeks later on September 10th, 1976. And in that, he writes, since the publication of the Washington Environmental Atlas in 1975, which refers to such examinations, we have received several inquiries similar to yours, he wrote. However, we have been unable to locate any reference to such examination in our files. More than two months later, on November 24th, 1976, Brian replied, perhaps embodied by the earlier response, he asked not for information, but for a favor. (laughs) Briefly, we do not often come across hair which we are unable to identify, and the hair that we have now, about 15 hairs attached to a tiny piece of skin, 
was the first that we've obtained in six years, which we feel may be of importance, he wrote. He asked Cochrane if he could possibly arrange for a comparative analysis of the tissue to, be de to determine its origins. At the time all this was going on, Bigfoot was in the news. Brian had been searching for the creature for five years, supported by the Academy of Applied Science, a small institution in Boston that, according to a document in the file, also sponsored hunts for the Loch Ness Monster. So you know you're in good company when. Yeah. The New York Times had profiled the 50-year-old's adventures in June of 1976, calling him a former professional hunter in Nepal who switched from tiger shooting and yeti hunting to tiger conservation and Bigfoot hunting. Isn't yeti and Bigfoot the same thing? Maybe it's not. Well, I mean, different continents, right? Like a tsunami and a tidal wave? Yeah. The same thing, just different name? Yeah. Most Bigfoot sightings are eventually discovered as insubstantial or faked, the New York Times wrote, but a handful hold up and are given high credibility. So far, Mr. Bryan said that he's never seen a Bigfoot himself, has collected the details of 94 reported sightings that seem believable. There are also many more reports of tracks. You should see the look on my face. I know. It's real, like, white guy meme of, like, what? No, it's not. It's the Obama meme of, like, what? Yeah. <laughs> the paper recounted several of those supposedly more credible sightings, and a clipping of that article was included in the FBI file. The next document in the file, in chronological order, was Cochrane's instruction to examine the hairs Brian passed along. This does not represent a change in bureau policy, a memorandum included in the file states, as an apparent effort to justify the decision. We've been doing crazy shit forever. That's what that means. <laughs> the laboratory branch has a history of making its unique services and expertise available to the Smithsonian Institution, other museums, universities, and government agencies in archaeological matters, and in the interest of research and legitimate scientific inquiry. Okay, the difference being the Smithsonian versus, like, Brian's Bigfoot Shack Museum. Like, <laughs> these aren't exactly the Bigfoot same. Bigfoot Information <laughs> Center and Exhibition. Right, it's a roadside attraction. Yeah, Let's oh be yeah. honest with ourselves. It is. Uh, unfortunately for Bigfoot hunters, the results weren't what they might have hoped. In 1977, so it did take them, like, a year. <laughs> oh good, they put it at the bottom of the to-do list. Yeah. The lab examined the 15 hairs. A final letter from Cochrane addressed to Howard S. Curtis, Executive Vice President of AAS, so the Academy of Applied Sciences, mm -hmm. is that what I said it was called? Yep. Read like this. Dear Mr. Curtis, the hairs which you rec recently delivered to the FBI laboratory on behalf of the Bigfoot Information Center and Exhibition have been examined by transmitted and indicate light micro... Wow, my brain just stopped working. <laughs> Microscopy. The examination of included a study of morphological characteristics such as root structure, medusinary structure, and cuticle thickness in addition to scale casts. Also, the hairs were compared directly to hairs of known origins under comparison microscope. It is concluded as the result of the examination that the hairs are of the deer family origin. The hairs sample you have submitted has been returned as enclosed in this letter. Ew. <laughs> That's a real F you. Like, take your deer nonsense and be gone. Sincerely yours, J. Cochran Jr., Assistant Director, FBI, Scientific Technical Services, Sci Services Division. 
Curtis replied March 8th, thanking Cochran and saying that he passed the news on to Barr when the monster hunter returned from Nepal. You can read the full FBI Bigfoot file by looking at the show notes that I've sent to Elise already. Look at me go. Yay! I sent you both. four weeks behind. I got two. I just got to catch up. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the next one, a story has nothing to do with yetis and Bigfoot. The title is Flushed Goldfish Grew to be Kitten-Sized in the Niagara River. How did we get from one to the other? I don't. I, I said this is just, just a... live list. science Yeah, this is just bit. live science rabbit hole. Got it. Or... What did I just read? Got it. <clears throat> this, a monstrously huge goldfish, was recently captured in the Niagara River in New York. The goldfish was presumably a discarded house pet that may have been illegally released or survived a traumatic flush down the toilet. Is there any nuclear power plants? There is. What is it? Three Mile Island? On this the is in Niagara? Uh, Buffalo. So right around Niagara. Is there a nuclear plant up there? Uh, yeah, I think so. There's yeah. a lot of them in that area. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Suddenly, this is all making a lot of sense. <laughs> well, we'll see how it makes a lot of sense. The Buffalo Niagara Waterkeeper, a nonprofit working, nonprofit group working to protect and restore the Niagara River and the Lake Erie watershed, caught and photographed the giant goldfish in the river's Black Rock Canal, sharing its image on Facebook post on June 14th. In the photo, an employee of the nonprofit cradles the fish at two hands, and the orange leviathan measures a whopping 14 inches long, according to the post. A lot of this is directly taken from the article, because I don't think I would have called it a leviathan on my own. Well, what I think is charming is that they, A, use the term leviathan, because perfect. But, B, I don't think anything that's ever 14 inches long has ever been described as a leviathan before, and yet it is somehow precisely the right word to use in this case. <laughs> An even more supersized goldfish was nabbed in California's Lake Taco, Lake Taco, Lake Tahoe in 2013. I want to go to there. <laughs> it weighed in at just uh, over four pounds Woo! and measured nearly two feet long. Them's good eatings. That's a goldfish. <laughs> Jeez. A goldfish are native to Eastern Asia and belong to the carp family. They usually reach about one to two inches in length when they live in an aquarium or small fish tanks. At most, they grow to about six inches in captivity, according to the New York State Department of Environmental Conservation. But when goldfish are released into streams and rivers, they often grow to be 12 to 14 inches long. And the first sighting of goldfish in New York waterways date back to 1842. <laughs> More than a dozen other states also noticed the appearance of goldfish in rivers and streams by the end of the 19th century. Hmm. Today, goldfish can be found in waterways across New York State as a result of illegally releasing pets or escaping from bait buckets. The fish can survive year-round in the Lake Erie watershed, and goldfish reproduce very quickly. A handful of goldfish released into a Colorado lake in 2012 multiplied into a number of tens of thousands just three years later. Wow. Invasive goldfish directly compete with native fish, and in large numbers, they upset the natural biodiversity of vulnerable freshwater environments. So there are carp. Carp fish tend to be, especially Asian carps, tend to be. Are carp and koi fish two different things? I think so. Koi, koi might be also in the carp family. Because they look like giant oversized 
and they're slightly I think a different breed they're probably from the same like, yeah, like family same coloring but again like you catfish. wouldn't exactly want to release them into a river either fair yeah because as we know with anything when you release a non-native species they tend to take over unless you're releasing an African cat into the wilderness of northern Canada. They might not survive the winter, but... Right. You know. Although, cats, you never know. That's true. <laughs> uh, blah, blah, blah. Aquatic invasive species that don't naturally belong in the Great Lakes, like this goldfish, are a constant threat to the health of native wildlife populations and in their and their habitats the representative of the buffalo niagara waterkeepers said across all the great lakes goldfish populations are estimated to run into the tens of millions wow <laughs> so and so that's the end of that one but can you imagine tens of millions of goldfish are just on the loose on the loose i would die if i ever saw a school of goldfish in like the madawaska let's say yeah, like, <laughs> like uh, nonstop laughing. You would have to, like, hospitalize me because I would not be able to stop laughing on my own. But it's also very bad because they're very invasive. They look so harmless and pretty, though. <laughs> I know. <laughs> they're true assholes, apparently. <laughs> Again, any non-native Native, species. Yeah. Like, when they introduced moose to Newfoundland because there's no predator natural for moose. Right. Uh, no natural predator for moose other than curs. Right. Um, and even in that situation, a moose usually comes out ahead. Yeah, it usually dies, but everybody usually dies. With just it. a lot of so yeah, it's yeah. a real like revenge style. <laughs> uh, and uh, fishers, I don't think are native to here. Um, turkey vultures aren't native to here. Oh, they were brought in to deal with road. Now, not that they're totally evasive, they're just more ugly than anything else. But yeah. uh, they aren't native to to this area. So, hmm. <sighs> so my last article is called it's less of what did i just read and more why <laughs> so it's it's called scientists have created a sound so loud it can vaporize water on contact why, why? as a creature that is 75 percent water i object <laughs> <laughs> so and this is not the sound of a massive underwater earthquake, nor it is the sound of a pistol shrimp snapping its claws louder than a Pink Floyd content concert. I don't know the reference. I'm just reading. Is there honestly a shrimp that can snap its claws louder than a concert? Uh, maybe. Apparently. We'll have to look that up. I should have probably looked that up. Oh, boy. Um, it is, in fact, the sound of a tiny water jet, about half the width of a human hair, being hit by an even tinier X-ray laser. Okay, again, why? You need to circle back around to that proposed story that you were going to do ages ago about how did this get funded. Yes. this feels like it should so, fall into that. Yes. So this definitely could, I should have probably categorized it under my, and why is this a study? Yeah. <laughs> um, you can't actually hear this sound because it was created in a vacuum chamber, and that's probably for the best. Consider that at about 270 decibels, these rumbling pressure waves are even louder than NASA's loudest ever rocket launch, which measured at about 205 decibels. What's the purpose? Like, <laughs> However, you can see the sound's microscopically devastating effects and actions thanks to a series of ultra-slow motion videos recorded at the SLAC National 
Accelerator Laboratory in Mellow Park, California, as part of a new study. Again, why? At least with a Large Hadron Collider, like, they have a goal. <laughs> like, but do they? I mean, it could destroy the universe, but, like, they have a goal. <laughs> this just seems needlessly dangerous. Uh, so the video was filmed at about 40 nanoseconds, so 40 billionth of a second. The pulsing later laser immediately splits the water jet in two, vaporizing the fluid that it touches while sending powerful pressure waves wobbling down each side of the jet. These waves create more waves and about 10 nanoseconds in, fizzing black clouds of collapsing bubbles form on each side of the cavity. Do not like. Why though? <laughs> what does this hope like? I feel like all these people who do this and like invent like new nail polish application styles, like just they need to take their time and energy and money and put it into like, you know, curing cancer, solving climate change, something productive like this. I'm not sure matches with humanity's long term intent. So according to Claudine Stan, this physicist at writers at Rutgers University in Newark, New Jersey, and one of the study's co-authors, these pressure, pressure waves likely represent the loudest possible underwater sound. If it were any louder, the sound would actually boil the liquid, Stan told Live, Live Science, and once the water boils, the sound has no medium to pass through. Why try to discover a sound that renders apart its own medium? According to Stan, understanding the limits of underwater sound could help researchers design future exter experiments. On how to destroy the whales? Like, what? Scientists regularly suspect little bits of intriguing matter, say a scientific type of protein crystal, for example, in fluid jets and blast them with lasers to determine their chemical properties. If scientists could know precisely how intense a laser pulse can be without accidentally destroying the liquid, that could improve the way these experiments are performed, Stan said. So this is a way to better self-destruct the planet or have a shot in the dark about we think there is this crystal in this water. Let's see if we got enough crystals. Let's, I be, know. let's be honest. <laughs> this research can help us investigate in the future how microscopic samples would respond when they are vibrated severely by underwater sound. Again, why? This is not the first time that SLAC researchers have used this X-ray laser to test the limits of physics. In 2017 studies, research used the same researchers used the same laser to blast electronics out of an atom, creating a molecular black hole that sucked in all the available electrons from nearby atoms. Taken in tandem, that study and the new one results in one unassailable conclusions: that lasers are really cool. Also, that this group is looking for ways to destroy us. This feels like a, blonde, a Bond villain in the making, quite frankly. If the next James Bond movie comes out where, like, somebody has managed to weaponize this system, not surprised at all. At all. So maybe this is Elon Musk. I, I was thinking, like, yeah, if Elon Musk is really building that underwater, like, universe, <laughs> like, city, town, like, yeah, sure. He's the one that needs to know about that as, like, a possible competing like ralph scorpio style like millionaires trying to destroy him i don't know this seems dangerous I've, we're, we're playing with fire here yes i like also why why what is the practical purpose of this who 
like, I get, so, like, I think, having watched The Big Bang Theory, a physicist just trying to decide, like, something to make themselves relevant? Like, there's lots of practical applications of physics. I don't know if this is one of them. Uh, according to this, physicists are just looking for ways to become Bond villains. Like, yeah, true. <laughs> well, on that note, I think my story can be linked with this last one in terms of, like... Why is this a thing? <laughs> more like humanity really should have seen this coming as an issue uh, and been a bit more proactive. So my story starts with Chrissy Teigen, who is a delight to follow on Twitter. I think we can all agree. Yes. She's probably the only good thing that happens on that website. Let's be honest. So she recently posted a story about Instagram influencers who are flocking to the site of the Chernobyl nuclear disaster, having been inspired by the HBO miniseries that aired this spring. Funny, because I almost did. I almost threw in the article that I had tagged, which were interesting facts about Chernobyl. But anyway, go ahead. Oh, I think I used that article in my story. (laughs) So now, if I ever need an example of a self-correcting problem, I've got my go-to is these influencers going to Chernobyl to just wander around. Uh, But it made me realize that beyond the broad strokes, I don't know very much about Chernobyl. It happened a year after I was born. It's the byword for a massive disaster. But like beyond that, I my knowledge was shockingly lacking. So that's my rabbit hole for this week. I dove in to what happened and what the fallout was. Pardon the pun. Unintentional, but still appropriate. So what did happen? So very early in the hours of April 26, 1986, technicians were running a safety test of a common type of nuclear reactor known as the RBMK type at the Chernobyl nuclear power plant near Pripyat, Ukraine, which was then part of the Soviet Union. Uh, And specifically, they were running the test on the number four reactor. The test was a simulation of an electrical power outage. It was a recognized safety flaw in the reactor system that between a power failure and the time the backup generators were at full operation, about a minute later, there was a potential for a nuclear core to overheat because there was nothing pushing coolant through the system. Reactor number four at Chernobyl had about 1,600 individual fuel channels that directed energy from the nuclear reactor that occurred in the core, each of which required water to cool them off at a flow of 28 metric tons, or 28,000 liters per hour. So the water pump for the coolant relied on electricity to run, so each reactor at Chernobyl plant had three dedicated diesel generators dedicated to it in case of an unexpected power failure but that takes time to ramp up to full speed. So that one minute window was what they were concerned with. Uh, The backup generators could start 15 seconds following a power shutdown, but would take an additional 60 seconds from there to reach full power output to generate the 5.5 megawatts required to run one coolant pump. The reactor was to go through a planned shutdown uh, that April, so the test was going to take advantage of that. So far, makes sense. We're shutting her down. Let's test this gap of 60 to 75 seconds of what happens. In theory, the test was going to use stored energy from the steam turbines to bridge the planned power gap between a shutdown of the reactor and the generators being at full throttle. I repeat, this was the theory. They weren't entirely sure it would work because it was a flaw in the system. So they had to prove this theory. 
It was expected that the rotational energy from the steam turbine would provide enough energy to keep the coolant pumps running for as much as 45 seconds as it wound down residual steam power, at which point the generators would have been running at enough capacity to pick up the slack. So again, in theory, power could be cut to the coolant pumps. For seconds 0 through 45, there would be no change in power to those cooling pumps. Starting at second 15, the diesel generators would kick in. By second 45, the steam turbine would be ramping down as the diesel generators were hitting their stride. So presumably there would be a small dip in power between seconds 45 and 60, but by second 60, there would be no issue as the diesel generators would be carrying all the power output required. This was the theory. So the theory is great, but it had to be proven. A first test occurred in 1982 but indicated that the voltage of the turbine generator was insufficient to power the cooling pumps. So the system was modified, and the test was repeated in 1984, but again proved unsuccessful. In 1985, a test was conducted a third time, but also yielded negative results. And so a fourth test was planned for 1986, and was scheduled to take place during a maintenance shutdown of Reactor 4. The fourth test wasn't beginning with an emergency shutdown, however, because it was a scheduled maintenance shutdown, so it was deemed that safety approvals from the reactor's chief designer wasn't required. Issue one <laughs> of where humans really should have thought things through a bit more. Instead of getting approval from the reactor's chief designer, approval was granted by the plant's director, but he didn't have the authority to actually give that approval, but he did, and so plants proceeded for this test. The procedure was supposed to be as follow. This was the test plan. Step one, the reactor would be run down to a power level between 700 megawatts and 800 megawatts. The steam turbine generator would be run up to its full speed. And then when these conditions were achieved, the steam supply for the turbine generator would be closed off. The turbine generator performance was to be recorded to determine whether it could provide the bridging power for the cooling pumps until the emergency diesel generators were sequenced to start and provide power to those pumps automatically. And then finally, the emergency generators were to reach normal operating speed and voltage, and the turbine generators would be allowed to continue to freewheel down just on its own pace. So that was the test plan. However, for this... That happened. Yeah. For this test... The whole process was delayed by 10 hours, meaning that the operating shift that had been trained and prepared to do the test, which was the day shift, and the electrical engineers expected to oversee the experiment were no longer on shift. Major problem. A regional power station near Kiev went offline unexpectedly that day, so Chernobyl was asked to maintain its power output in order to satisfy the peak evening demand for energy in the area. So despite this delay, preparations for the test that didn't impact the output of the power continued, including disabling key emergency fail-safe systems, like the emergency core cooling system, which you didn't want to kick in if you were testing what would happen if it wasn't going to kick in. So it makes sense that you turn that off. By 11 p.m., Kiev gave the all-clear that they were back up and running, so Chernobyl was off the hook for the extra power supply. So the test was supposed to start in the morning, of that day, but by 11 p.m. they were told by Kiev to go ahead. You can run down your reactors, it's fine. In reality, the day shift would have initiated the test. The evening shift would have seen the very last shutdown stages and the repercussions of the test, and the night shift would have resumed business as usual. So the night shift took no training at all because they didn't need it because the test was supposed to have been done by then. 
Had this all happened as planned, it's likely that it would have been a very uneventful day. However, we're talking about it because things did not go as planned. Oh. Hell no. Nope. A woefully unprepared night shift supervisor was directed to run the test, but failed to follow the procedures that had been set out, creating unstable operating conditions, which, when combined with the known flaw in the system, uh, and the intentional disabling of several emergency safety systems resulted in the uncontrolled nuclear reaction that we know of as the Chernobyl disaster. So there were a series of unexpe unexpected events that snowballed into the final results. And when disasters this big happen, it's usually because there are a lot of yes, little things, things that, that just become uh, a big shit show. Yeah. So first of all, Anatoly Dyatlov, the deputy chief engineer of the entire Chernobyl nuclear plant was present to supervise and direct the experiment. He outranked all other supervisory personnel present, and his orders and instructions overrode any objections of any senior personnel present during the test and its preparations. So Buddy had it in his head that this test had to happen on this date and would not and could not be talked down from it. Problem one. Mm. Problem two. You're going to just left it for the day shift. The next day. Yeah. Problem two. As the reactor was winding down, its power output suddenly dropped from 700 megawatts, which was the basement range for the test, down to 30 megawatts, which is basically at a near shutdown stage. So not enough power was being pushed to the steam turbines to get them up to the speed needed to run the test as the, the power generating part of the system. The cause of this drop is unknown, but has been attributed to either human error or equipment failure. So... <laughs> Here's something sad. The only way I know how a nuclear actor works is because of the James Bond movie where he, with Christmas Jones, where he's pulling yeah. nuclear core, like rods out of a subcore. So one of the things that they did to prepare for the test was pull out a bunch of those rods manually. So whether or not somebody pulled too many mm, yes. or um, the equipment just failed because of those pulls, like it's still up in the air. Nobody knows as to why the power drops so low. But as a result of this power drop, the engineers running the test decided to override the reactor's automatic control rod regulation system and manually fiddle with the nuclear rods in order to increase energy output. So all but 18 of the nuclear rods were left in place, but 28 were required to run the reactor in fail-safe mode. So they took out about half as many as they should have to be safe because they needed to generate more heat. And when you pull the rods out is when it gets hot. So they pull more yep. rods out to run up the power. The drop in energy production that was occurring created an increase in the reactor's core of a compound called Xenon-135, leading to something which sounds terrifying called core poisoning, which further restricted the core's ability to produce power. So more manual fiddling with the rods was required in terms of how, we were, how many you're pulling out and to yep. what degree. At this point, emergency alarms were going off in the control room. Duh. <laughs> the power output was hella low. The core's temperature was becoming unstable. The coolant flow wasn't consistent because there was no nothing pushing it through. There was not enough energy. And the core was suffering from this poisoning. And all of those alarms were ignored. Like each time one of these things happened, the beep beep would go off and they just kept ignoring everything. Once the manual overrides brought power output back up to 200 megawatts, which was still way below the 700 prescribed in the test plan, the test was resumed and additional water pumps were engaged to bring coolants into the core. Fun fact, 
Because of the additional water being forced through the system, there wasn't sufficient time for it to let off the heat that it was absorbing, which brought the coolant dangerously close to something called the nucleate boiling point. And I looked up nucleate boiling point, and I don't understand what it is, but context clues tell me it's not good. No. No. At this point, warning alarms are going off in the control room that there's low steam pressure in the system. And remember, it's the steam turbines that were going to be the energy supply for the coolant when the power was finally cut. Basically, the engineers on site that day were playing a really dangerous game of Jenga and had taken out every single piece that they possibly could. And it was going to take something very minor to have that whole thing come down in a big, explodey way. <laughs> Boy, did it ever. Yep. So while this is happening, the warning signs are going off, they're still pushing forward, and the test proceeds, regardless. They initiated the test by cutting power to the coolant pumps and transferring energy generation to the steam turbines. But as they started powering down as expected, the amount of coolant being pushed through the cores started reducing, and that's when the nucleated boiling point reaction comes into play. As the water flow rate decreased, the amount of steam voids, or bubbles, increased in the core. Without the coolant in the reactor, the power output couldn't be controlled since there was nothing there to absorb the heat and the energy being produced. The action that took down that exploding Jenga tower was the initiation of the emergency shutdown system. Why this occurred is still unknown. Either somebody finally decided not to play chicken with the nuclear core and blinked and hit the emergency shutdown button, or they considered that the experiment was at its end and it had failed again, so they were just shutting down the system as quickly as possible, so they hit the emergency stop. Or the system finally just tripped itself because there were too many issues happening. It was an honest-to-God self-destruct move on behalf of the reactor. Like, it just it hit too many variables yeah. and shut itself down. As part of the emergency shutdown, all the rods that had been manually removed from the reactor were forced back into the core, temporarily increasing power output. So remember, they need at least 28 of the 1600, and all 1600 got jammed back into the core to bring the power back up to operate safely. This caused, probably no surprise, a power spike, which fractured a bunch of the rods as they were a third of the way into the core, making them impossible to either retract or push the rest of the way in, which would have stabilized the system. It's estimated that the power spike that occurred was in the neighborhood of 30,000 megawatts, Holy crap. Which is 10 times more than the reactor's normal output. And the last reading that registered on the control panels was for 33,000 megawatts at some point. That's a lot of power. Yeah. <laughs> at this point, the coolant water just vaporized. That's what the nuclear boiling point is involved with. Uh, and it caused a steam explosion. So think of your pressure cooker without the release valve. Every so often you see pictures where like the lid goes through like the stove hood and like embeds itself in the ceiling. Yeah. That's basically what happened here. The explosion damaged the reactor's exterior cooling structure, structure uh, and that caused an explosion that destroyed the reactor's casing, tearing off and blasting away the upper plate which went through the roof of the reactor's building. This damaged the cooling system further, causing the majority of the water to flash into steam which further increased the core's temperature. And all of this occurred within two to three seconds. The next series of explosions, because <laughs> that wasn't it, impacted the reactor itself. The effect was felt within the core, uh, which ended the nuclear chain reaction, 
and it also flung molten hunks of metal, the graphite, around the nuclear rods into the area around the reactor, which, once exposed to air, immediately caught on fire. Flying hunks of burning metal aren't great, as one would imagine, uh, and they caused multiple fires within the plant's facilities because they... Also, they were radioactive. Yeah, they were highly, dangerously radioactive, but they went through the roof and they went out, <laughs> and as soon as they hit air, and just exploded into fire. This was immediately followed by an open-air reactor core fire, which released considerable airborne radioactive contamination for about nine days into the USSR and Western Europe before finally being contained on the 4th of May, 1986. So one survivor, Alexander Yuvchenko, describes the immediate result of the explosion as, quote, very beautiful, and a laser-like beam of bluish light caused by the ionization of air that appeared to flood up into affinity. So think of all the superhero movies where you get that giant tower of, like, blue light. Literally what happened. (laughs) But instead it just killed and made a lot of people sick. Yes. After the explosion, as you would expect, the results were very bad. The power plant had its own fire brigade, which responded immediately. For context for how bad the situation was immediately after the explosion, the brigade's leader, Vladimir Pravik, died two weeks later of acute radiation sickness. The equipment on site was giving off uh, faulty readings of radiation. So uh, the engineers assumed that the reactor was intact, so they didn't inform. There's conflicting stories, but um, what they're... The assumption is is that the brigade, the brigade, the fire brigade, was not informed that the reactor was involved, so they didn't gear up appropriately. They just responded mm. to a regular fire on the site, not a reactor's fire. Some other uh, accounts are saying that's not true. They knew what it was, but they were just in such a hurry to get in and contain it that they didn't take the time to gear up appropriately. So, as I said, it took nine days before the open-air core fire was extinguished, during which time it pumped out the same amount of radiation as the initial explosion had. The uh, fire was, in the end, extinguished by a combined effort of helicopters dropping over 5,000 metric tons of sand, lead, clay, and neutron-absorbing boron onto the burning reactor. Helicopters were just flying shit over and trying to smother it from above. It's now known, however, that virtually none of the neutron absorbers actually reached the core. Like, it just didn't land right, or the heat just vaporized it. Uh, And historians estimate that about 600 Soviet pilots risked dangerous levels of radiation to fly the thousands of flights needed to cover the reactor in an attempt to seal off this radiation leak. So, six months after the explosion, a team was able to introduce a remote control camera into the reactor space. And what they found has been since dubbed the elephant's foot. It's a two meter wide mass of melted sand, concrete, and nuclear fuel that has escaped the reactor. The concrete beneath the reactor was still steaming hot and had been cracked by something that looked like a lava-like substance that had a crystalline look, which which subsequently became known as Chernobylite. So it created its own mix of chemical compounds that is unique to this one terrible situation. The death count for this accident is hard to pin down um, because what are you going to count? Are you counting just the power plant staff who were front row center for this massive nuclear explosion? Do you include the first responders, civilians in the area that were immediately impacted, the civilians who got the biggest dose of radiation? At what point is cancer a coincidence versus the results of a slightly higher than normal radiation 
in the atmosphere, how far out are you going to go? So the numbers are hard to pin down. The United Nations has estimated that about 4,000 people died as a direct result, whereas Greenpeace is saying it's 200,000. So I think Greenpeace has uh, some skin in the game on that. A more kind of moderate estimate is between 4,000 and 90,000. <laughs> it's still a huge gap. It's still huge, but... Uh, during the accident, steam blast effects caused two deaths within the facility immediately. Uh, one after the explosion and the other um, as a result of that ionizing radiation, so that giant laser beam that went up into the sky of blue light. <laughs> like, that'll, that'll cook someone. Over the earliest days and weeks following the incident, 134 servicemen were hospitalized with acute radiation syndrome, 28 of whom, including firemen and employees of the plant, died within months. Approximately 14 radiation-induced cancer deaths among this group of 134 hospitalized survivors followed within the next 10 years. So, I mean, considering the dosages that they got, it's kind of low for those 134, but, like, I'm sure there was long-term impacts on physical health regardless. In the wider population, within the first five years after the uh, explosion, the instances of childhood cancer increased by more than 90%. So the youngest with a lower ability to take on poisons into the system felt it the worst. As you would expect, following the explosion, there was a desperate need to get out of the area as quickly as possible. So within hours, dozens of people in Prir Piat, which is the nearest village, started reporting severe headaches and metallic taste in their mouth, along with uncontrollable fits of coughing and vomiting, all of which are classic symptoms of radiation poisoning. The plant was run from Moscow, it was the USSR, so the Ukrainian authorities weren't getting good or current information on what was happening at the plant or what the fallout actually was. And in fact, as it was during the Cold War, Moscow was just desperately trying to keep a lid on everything that was happening. By the evening of the 26th, two people in the nearby village of Piriapat had died and 52 were hospitalized for radiation sickness. And within a day and a half, a 10-kilometer exclusion zone was created and 49 people were evacuated from that town. It was expected, and they were told at the time, that it would be a three-day evacuation, but it was later made permanent. So that exclusion zone grew to be 30 kilometers in diameter, necessitating the further evacuation of an additional 68,000 people from the larger town of Chernobyl itself. So there's big town Chernobyl, then Piriapet, and then the... Power plant, yeah. So how do you go about repairing a cluster oops of this size? (laughs) You don't really repair it. You just pour a shitload of concrete on it. And hope for the best. Yes. So that is exactly what they did. The remains of number four reactor building were quickly enclosed in a concrete sarcophagus, which was a large shelter designed to reduce the spread of radioactive contamination from the wreckage and to protect the site from further weathering. So the accident happened in April of 86, and the sarcophagus was finished by December of the same year. It's very speedy for the size and what it actually is. They used robots as much as possible to clear debris and to build the structure, but many failed due to the high levels of radiation present. So when even your robotics are crapping out because of the radiation, it's bad. (laughs) Yeah. They still had to do the work, though. Mm -hmm. So... The approximately 5,000 soldiers that were deployed to help on the scene were used to perform this work. And there was very strict protocol set out about how much and how often you could go into the site and work. 
all of it was ignored. You should only get kind of like one trip in and a suit a day type of thing. Some guys were doing five to six trips a day to help clear out the situation as quickly as possible. I mean, heroes, a lot of them, but should never have been asked or expected no. or demanded. But it was also USSR, Cold War, communist, you do what you're, you're told. Yeah, or you family gets to visit a gulag. Yeah. So, unfun fact number one, uh, this is December of the re- of the same year, so April, May, June, July, August, September, October, November, December, um, eight months after the reaction or the reactor explosion. By this point, the reactor was just entering its shutdown phase. It ran for eight months because it couldn't be like the nuclear chain reaction yeah. was happening because it couldn't be controlled. Second unfun fact: there was a concern that the reactor would be would stabilize enough to allow for the nuclear chain reaction to occur again, which would lead to another explosion. So that was another reason that they were hurrying as quickly as possible, because if things stabilized enough, the reactor would just naturally do what it did and kick in, and that nuclear reaction would occur again, and poof. Yep. So the other reason why they needed to build this sarcophagus so quickly was that they never shut down Chernobyl as a power plant. Reactor 3 was the last to shut down, and that only happened in 2000. So they were still sending men into that area, men and women into that area, to work a regular day shift at producing power for the region. I did not know that Chernobyl was still active. Yep. There are images online of the shutdown ceremony in 2000, and I think it's really telling that you have all these men in suits in front of a podium and then all of the actual engineers are on teleconference. So like they, the the actual shutdown ceremony didn't even happen there. Like the officials wouldn't even go there and they live streamed in images of the engineers on site doing the final shutdown of the power. So like, no, like if you're going to demand that they still run that is the Aaron Brockovich drink this water move, right? Like you drink the water from the area that you're poisoning and call it a day. Like, yeah, be reasonable. It was a rush job. There were reasons why it needed to be done. But construction standards, jobs kind of at the tail end of the Soviet unions don't have the best reputation. And so there has been international concern that the sarcophagus has been deteriorating and deteriorating too quickly. And so both the sarcophagus itself and reactor number four were further enclosed in 2017 by the Chernobyl New Safe Confinement Organization. So now a larger state-of-the-art enclosure, which has the ability to facilitate the removal of both the sarcophagus and the reactor debris while containing radioactive contamination is in place. Well, also, like, concrete doesn't last forever. It deteriorates on its own anyway. So no, you're also like microwaving it from the yeah. So out. you're. I mean, that was the best they could do at the time. Yeah. But a, it doesn't last forever anyway. B, you have it under extreme conditions. Yeah. That was built quickly by men who didn't want to be there. Let's face it; they were probably threatened. Yeah. I would assume. Yeah. I'm not gonna say it. Yeah, I said that. Yeah, <laughs> come after me. Yeah, um, come at us, bro. I'm Putin. Like, come on. <laughs> but like, yeah, it's just such a. Well, think of uh, Canadians out there. Think of Montreal. Like Montreal was built in a hurry, using by a mob, by a mob using less than perfect conditions and equipment. And so there's a reason why you, when you drive through Montreal and you see chunks of like the overpasses missing. Yeah. <laughs> 
Because concrete breaks down. Yes. And when it's not put in place properly and it's a yeah. cheap quality to start off with, like you're just increasing the... Yeah. So that's what's containing Chernobyl at this point. <laughs> well, now... <laughs> Until they have this new structure yeah. put around it. So who was re- held responsible for this, if anyone? Um, I didn't get too deep into this, but... I did want to mention our good buddy, uh, Anatoly Dyatlov, the deputy chief engineer of the plant, who just single-mindedly said, we're going, we're going, we're going. He was on site during the delayed test initiation, and because of his position, he outranked everyone there and was able to ignore any requests slash suggestions that the test be halted. In 1987, he was found guilty of, quote, criminal mismanagement of potentially explosive enterprises. No shit. Yeah. That is the understatement... Of the century. Of the century. Uh, the sentence was for 10 years imprisonment, of which he would serve five for the, his role in the oversight of the experiment that played part of the ensuing accident. I'm sh- I hope more people got held responsible. This was the only one that I chipped upon because the Wikipedia entry for this like goes and goes and goes and goes. Yeah. And at some point I had to leave for an appointment today. So. <laughs> well, also, like, yeah, like you're not entirely sure how Soviet Russia... Really? Right. Yeah, like, I'm sure lots of people were held accountable for it. Yes, but how many of them were officially versus just disappeared one day? Yeah. And ended up in Siberia? Yeah. A lot of people also were very ill, so, like, yeah. you know, you want justice, but you also know that a lot of those people who were on Ground Zero... Yeah, some of the engineers that were in the room that just kept, like, pushing through the emergency alarms, like... They were to be put on trial, and they just never made it because they had too big of a radiation dose on site and died within a year or so. Yeah, and, like, I don't think those were easy deaths. Those were very painful. Oh, yeah. And it varies person to person, too. I was, like, reading accounts of, like, some people experience bloat. Other people kind of whittle away to nothing, and it's a whole... I remember hearing about, like, after when I was a kid, that they would take kids that they, like, that got it... Um, evacuated from the exclusion zone and they were still living usually somewhere in the Ukraine so areas that are still probably fairly higher uh, radiation levels than say other places in the world are and they would take them and send them on like month-long summer camps to places that had very low radiation Hmm. and that would actually decrease their body radiation overall like the radiation in their body because there's a certain like length of time that they could be in these places and it would actually and then they'd go home and then like Build it back up and come back out. So what were some of the long-term results of this incident? Uh, to date, the accident has an approximate bill of $68 billion U.S. dollars, and that's with inflation and adjustment. That's a lot of money, $68 billion. Uh, upgrades occurred to all Soviet-designed RBMK reactors, of which there are actually 10 still in operation. So <laughs> that's a brave, brave power plant that still operates those suckers well actually like when they melt down it is very dangerous yes but it doesn't happen very often yes the exception of that and fukushima and and three mile island but three mile island actually was stopped before it went full chernobyl went full because it was actually predates chernobyl oh um yeah they managed to shut it down they just like it's still sort of there but it didn't actually explode or there wasn't really like it's just it was contain and shut down and then like safety procedures got better after that but right. those are the three think of that that's three disasters yeah and there are hundreds if not thousands upon thousands of operating nuclear worldwide operating worldwide 
it is one of the safest power generating supplies and that we have. Very efficient. Efficient. Very eco friendly, with the exception of because a lot of that, like those rods, are taken. Yeah. Because um, they're cobalt. Um, they're taken and then they're shipped. A lot of them are shipped here to Ottawa. Oh, fun fact. Yeah. Um, but they're shipped in like containers that are very controlled. They contain yes. radiation. And then a lot of those are then used in um, medical devices. Yes. We have Chalk River does the... But they create medical isotopes which are very different. These oh. um, these rods then become x-ray, MRIs, CT yeah. scans. Um, they're used to power... Um, equipment such as that. Hmm. I only know this because I knew someone who actually that was their job was to make sure the containers that these rods were coming back. Right. That they were shipping out for um, power plants to send the rods back from all over the world um, were safe. They get they get cleaned out, decontaminated. Yep. De- yeah. Um, and then uh, inspected. And if they were uh, in good shape, they'd get sent back out to get more rods back. Yep, not a job I would do because I'm a giant chicken and I don't care how many radiation suits you put me in, I'd still like cough a lot <laughs> and be convinced. Yeah. And you know, WebMD would just back me up on that. That is true. <laughs> and yeah. tell me that, yes, I do have radiation poisoning. <laughs> oh, WebMD. So, other long term results uh, there was an estimated 100,000 to 200,000 abortions in Europe after Chernobyl as a result of radiophobia, according to your fave live science. Many doctors throughout Eastern Europe and the Soviet Union advised pregnant women to undergo abortions to avoid bearing children with birth defects or other disorders, though the actual level of radiation exposure in these women were too low to cause any problems. But... Hysteria. Hysteria. The city of Priyapet is a ghost town. Because people only expected to be gone for three days, they left their lives behind them as if they'd go back shortly. The area is now known as the Zone of Alienation, or the Exclusion Zone, and it is illegal to live there, but some people still do. It's an estimated that there are 130 to 150 people still living in the zone, many of whom are older women, and they are there specifically to farm their family's land with the expectation that the family will be coming back to claim the property. Obviously, there are no schools or healthcare in that area, so it's not a good life. It's hard living, to say the least. Given the amount of radiation pumped out in the initial explosion and the fires that followed, the area around Chernobyl won't be safe for human habitation for another 20,000 years or so. That doesn't stop people from visiting, however. Yes, you can now visit. And so now we're coming back full circle to good old Chrissy Teigen. I am not advocating for this. In fact, I'm telling you specifically not to do this. But TripAdvisor lists 145 tours operating in the Chernobyl Priyapet regions of the Ukraine, ranging for about $100 a day, you could take a tour to the Chernobyl nuclear plant. Various tour companies say that their bookings have increased by 30 to 40% since the HBO show started airing. And they also claim that the amount of radiation you get in a visit is equal to the amount you get if you stay in your home for 24 hours, to which I call BS. Because if you can't live in this region for about 20,000 years before all that radiation is gone, you're still picking up too much radiation for my comfort. <laughs> Have you ever seen on Netflix The Dark Tourist? No. Look it up. He, does, he doesn't go to Chernobyl, I don't think, but he goes to the uh, exclusion area around Fukushima. Oh, yeah. And on a dark 
tourist tour that's like taking people into the exclusion zone. They have like Geiger counters and stuff, mm. and it's it's interesting. Well, the region or the area around uh, the Chernobyl plant is now called the Red Forest because all the plant life died, but it's still there. It just has this reddish hue, and like that's just the earth bleeding. Like that's telling yeah. you something's bad. <laughs> Yeah, and but like let's people, go take pictures of it for the gram. <laughs> like, yeah, those people posing in front of like the abandoned Ferris wheel. Yeah, self-correcting problem. <laughs> We're gonna get rid of those Instagram influencers by their own. Well, hand. a lot of them are gonna end up with thyroid cancer by their own hand. Oh, agree. No one forcing them to go to do this. It's it is stupid. I can't think like. It's like climbing Kilimanjaro or Mount Everest with, like, one tube of oxygen and a light coat because you can. Like, just to prove how tough you are. Like, there's a reason this is a zone of exclusion and nobody can live there. It is dangerous. Yeah. So I was reading, I think it was on Long Sides, too, about, uh, go back to your Everest. So, so many people are now climbing Everest that it's actually becoming a problem because people are dying, waiting in the like the worst area yeah. to be to get up to the to come back down. Have you ever read Into Thin Air? No. It, most recently in the last year or two, there's been the deadliest climbing season. But before that, this book was written about the most the deadliest climbing season, and it follows John Krakauer, the author of like the whole thing, like arriving in Tibet, hitting base camp, the practice expeditions up what happens when you get to, like, base camp three, like, the last one before you reach the top. And it's just, like, a lineup of people going up to the top. It's it's the most ridiculous-sounding human experience ever. Like, you start at 3 a.m., you're up there, you have altitude sickness, so he the only thing he could eat was a pack of M&Ms. So at that point, you're just going on sheer stubbornness. Like, there's no... Your body is telling you to stop and go home. Yeah, and then if you get weather, then you're dead. Yeah. You that was the thing, like, the weather moved in unexpectedly when just as they were coming down off the summit. And so, like, all these tours were taking people who were woefully unprepared. Like, they followed one woman. Here, he was talking about one woman from Toronto who prepared by going up and down the stairs in her apartment building. Like, that was the only training she had for this. So guess who died on the mountain that year? (laughs) The lady, yeah. Yeah. So, like, stick to, like, tours of, I don't know, like, the Loire Valley in France or Disneyland. Like, Tuscany. Don't go seeking out these death-defying experiences because they're death-defying for a reason. Now, my cousin went to, like, the base camp one. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've had a friend who went up there, too. But even that has its problems now because of the uh, environmental footprint of all that. Yeah, like... It's like a dump up there now. I don't know. I, I, I can't... I'm, there's no part of me that goes, you know what? It's like a three-day hike in to just base camp, and then you're just at base camp. Like, what do you... like? You take a picture and you go. Like, there's nothing much else to do up there. Yeah, we took a tram up to the top of a mountain in Banff. That's good enough for me. Yeah. It was cold. Yeah. Dan had to carry the baby around. Yeah. Good. So, that is our show. Life lessons. Stay out of Chernobyl. (laughs) And why? Why try to evaporate evaporate water with sound and teeny tiny lasers? So much of this planet depends on water. Yeah. We got issues as a species. Oh, yeah. Like, we've had <laughs> issues for a long time. I know. But, but then you read about these instances and you're just like, This is why we can have nice things. Yeah. So on that note, <laughs> head over to our website, www.rabbitholespodcast, for more information about the show. 
While you're there, check out the merch tab, which takes you to our Redbubble store so you can get some of the Rabbit Holes podcast merch. Also check out the support tab for the link to our Patreon page and come on board as a patron. Get access to the not-so-secret secret part of the website and special recordings. And if you have a rabbit hole that you like to fall down or that you uh, would like to tell us about, send us an email at rabbitholespodcast at gmail.com and we will definitely look into that. Yes. Uh, we are also on the social media. You can find us on Twitter at Rabbit Holes Pod. You can find us on Facebook at Rabbit Holes Podcast page and on Instagram at Rabbit Holes Podcast. If you like what we're doing, you can give us a review or rate us on uh, a multitude of platforms, including Apple Podcast. You can also pimp us out to your friends and family, tell them all about our fantastic podcast and the Ottawa Podcast Festival that's coming up in August that we will be at, uh, along with a a plethora of other local podcasters. So uh, You said plethora. I did say plethora. Put the emphasis on the wrong syllable on that one. Did I? (laughs) Plethora. Plethora. I've always (laughs) said plethora. Oh. Yeah. Like Persephone. Yeah. Persephone. (laughs) Persephone. (laughs) Who cares? Uh, Yeah, come see us. However yes. you pronounce that, uh, come see us, and uh, we will... Uh, Delight and entertain you. Yes, hopefully make you laugh. Yes. Head over to the festival website, which is www.ottawapodcastfestival.com for information about the lineup and to buy your tickets. And if you're thinking about taking a vacation, why not come up to Ottawa for the weekend of August 24th, which I found out is also Ottawa's Pride weekend. Ooh. So you know it's going to be a good party. Yeah. <laughs> Bring your rainbows, bring your leather, people. Absolutely. So that is it for the show for this week. There's just one last thing to do, and that's to remind you that if you don't know where you're going, any road will take you there. Bye, guys. Bye. Don't forget your over-the-shoulder boulder holders. Yes.